Coming Up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Just a quick message before you get there. For the month of June, we're asking listeners to donate to the station to help us keep going. In 2023, we're asking our community to stay tuned, stay radical. We rely on the generous donations of community to survive. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate and show your support for community-owned and community-run media. Thanks for your support and happy listening. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Elise Thomas, who is an OSINT analyst at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, as well as an investigator at the Centre for Information Resilience. Thanks for joining us, Elise. Hi, thanks for having me. Bit of a busy weekend. Yeah, it was It was a bit hectic, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> coups and mini-coups and all sorts of things flying around. I guess, just to begin with, could you tell us what on earth happened? That is a great question, and I reckon we'll find out in about 10 years when somebody writes a deep-dive investigative piece. I, I like Honestly, I, I don't know, and I think anybody who tells you that they do know at this point is lying, um, or, or at least very, very overconfident. I've really enjoyed in the past 24 hours the huge numbers of people on Twitter who've acknowledged that they have no idea what's going on and haven't let, them, let that stop them from their 48-tweet threads about their opinions on what's going on. The broad brushstrokes seem to be that Prigozhin appears to have lost his sense of where the line was with the Ministry of Defence. So the the background context of this is over the past few months, we've seen increasing friction between Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, and the Ministry of Defence, particularly the Defence Minister, Sergei Shoigu. And Prigozhin has made a series of kind of increasingly extreme public and public statements, videos, videos surrounded by corpses in some cases, where he is more or less baiting the Ministry of Defence for, in his eyes, not supplying Wagner with the, the equipment and the support that they need. And as he's, as he's gone on, his comments have become more and more extreme, more pushing the line. Relatively recently, he's made, made some comments almost hinting at an internal revolution within Russia, which I and many other people who, who watch this quite closely were really surprised by because it really seemed like he was dancing on some very thin ice. And it appears what happened now is that he he fell through. He's reached the point where where Putin's patience snapped. And over over the course of about 36 hours, we saw an increasing escalation up to the point where Wagner fighters appeared to be in control of a, a proportion of Rostov-on-Don, which is, which is one city, and, and Voronezh, which is another city, which is, I believe, about 200 kilometres from Moscow. We saw Wagner fighters begin the trip up the highway towards Moscow and then suddenly stop. So here in Australia, what happened is I went to sleep thinking, oh, they're about to like make a march on Moscow. This is an astounding thing. Woke up. Oh, it's all over. 
So it, it appears what happened is that there was some, and again, like I, I want to be really clear, we really don't know exactly what's happened at this very early stage. It appears there was the, both the Kremlin and Prigozhin were having backed themselves into this very extreme corner looking for a way out. And the, the Kremlin appears to have tapped Belarusian president and Alexander Lukashenko on the shoulder to, to go and offer effectively a form of exile to Evgeny Prigozhin in return for reading between the lines not being murdered and also the, the agreement to not prosecute his Wagner fighters. But honestly, it's still, it's still extremely murky at this stage. All that we can really say is that this is a really bad look for the Kremlin. It's a really bad look for Prigozhin and it's a great look for Ukraine. The Wagner Group were sent into Ukraine with a remit to denazify. In a way, they've gone after Putin, who we know has hired mercenaries with strong Nazi ties to go into Ukraine. Are they not just pursuing what they were told to do? I mean, I guess that that's one way of looking at it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about who this Pogosian guy is? I was surprised to discover that he was behind such great Russian hits as the Internet Research Agency. Yeah, he's got such a long and interesting history, and I, I feel like we really still don't know know the half of it. So, like, off the, I, I'm not an expert in Progression's kind of early history. Off the top of my head, he went to prison for about a decade when he was, I think, 18 or 19 for a, a very, very violent assault on a woman. He came out of prison. He started a series of small food businesses, starting with a hot dog stand, building up to catering businesses that he was running in St. Petersburg. At some point in this period, he was introduced to Vladimir. Putin, possibly by one of Putin's bodyguards. And so that's where the nickname Putin's chef comes from. Prigozhin is not a chef. Like I wouldn't recommend eating anything this man cooks. He owned a series of catering companies as well as a number of restaurants. Then Putin was very keen on the restaurants, which is again, possibly how he got the, the contracts for his catering companies. And so his catering companies have contracts with a number of Russian state ministries. And so he's kind of gradually built his fortune up from there. And at some point he, I can't off the top of my head, remember the date, but started this this organization called the Internet Research Agency, I presume around 2015. And that is the organization which is allegedly involved in attempting to interfere in the US 2016 elections, as well as being involved in a number of other escapades around the world. Probably also wouldn't recommend eating anything, any food served to him for a while. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be real interesting to see how he goes in Minsk. Like, I think it's kind of funny because Putin famously also does not get along with Alexander Lukashenko on a personal level. Like you see them together, their body language, they cannot stand each other. And I've got to think like there's probably a part of Putin that feels a little bit smug about having locked Prigozhin and Lukashenko up in a relatively boring city to just get on each other's nerves. At least it's long been maintained that it's a foolish idea for a prince to rely upon mercenaries to maintain their rule. What impact do you think the weekend's events will have on Putin's regime? I mean, it's a great question. I don't want to join the pundits who are confidently offering opinions in the absence of any real facts. We don't really know exactly what the terms of the agreement with Prigozhin were yet. So we don't really know to what extent. And I I think it'll be really interesting because it's always been a question mark over how much of Wagner's operations, particularly the international operations in multiple countries in Africa, how much that was a genuinely independent, separate operation and how much it was just a cover for Russian state activities. We may be about to find out which ones of those were actually Wagner and which one of them were just the Ministry of Defence or some other Russian intelligence agency with a funny moustache on. So I think the the conditions of, of that agreement that they've made with Prigozhin will have a, will, will be really, that will drive the 
what happens to the Wagner group in the future. I think the broader picture of what it means for Putin's regime, it's not good. It's, it's obviously not in any sense a fatal blow. This doesn't mean that Putin is going to fall tomorrow. It doesn't mean he's going to fall in five years. But it's, it's another crack in the ice, I think, of his regime. It, it makes him look weak, and particularly the, the phenomenal lack of response the fact that Wagner was able to take at least some of the central parts of these two cities with, with almost no pushback is astounding and it does make the regime look really weak. Also kind of the relative absence of Putin over the past 36 hours, he gave one speech and as far as I'm aware hasn't really been seen in public since, which is which is astounding given what has just happened. So, yeah, like, like long story short, it's a really bad look, but we don't know exactly how this will affect either the war in, war in Ukraine or the long-term stability of the Putin regime. Are we sure that Putin is on a plane to the Bahamas? I think I might have read that somewhere on Twitter or something. Well, so there was a so I mean, I think the I think the the other story here is the way in which Twitter responded to this particular crisis. So there there were like there were some flight tracking websites. People noticed that there were some Russian government planes moving around during that mini mutiny period, including one of the presidential planes. There was a lot of speculation that Putin was kind of fleeing to St. Petersburg. There's no proof that he was on that plane, so we don't we don't yeah we we don't know. I think it's astounding how little we've seen of Putin during this period. So we don't actually know physically where he is right now. And how sure can we be that all of the, the these videos that were coming out of the Wagner group were, were real? It seemed like there was some question marks over, was every single statement flying around perhaps 100% true? Like, as we were saying a moment ago, this is a man who, like, owns a troll factory who is famously a liar who spent years suing journalists and researchers for saying that he owned the troll factory only to come out later and be like, oh, yeah, no, he owned the troll factory and also that he owned or and, and was the leader of Wagner only to later come out and say, oh, yeah, no, I do. Like, just to acknowledge that he'd been blatantly lying for years and years and years. So was this man lying a bit? Yeah, probably. There's the original kind of provocation that, that Prigozhin kind of asserted at the beginning of all of this, I think is quite questionable. But again, we, we don't really have a lot of hard evidence because all of this just unfolded so fast. And I'm yeah quite, quite reluctant to make too many definitive statements before we have the actual facts, because there's been a lot of making definitive statements without facts in the past 36 hours. <laughs> Elise, you research, you study online political expressions. What have you noticed since Elon Musk has taken over Twitter, especially in the context of the weekend's events and Twitter having obtained a reputation as being the place to go to for breaking news? I think in the long term, what we've all noticed is kind of just a long term decline in the quality of content that is being boosted by the algorithms on Twitter. Obviously, part of that is the removal of the, the verification status from reputable information sources, journalists, researchers, people who know what they're talking about, and the, the transferal of those blue ticks to people who have nine bucks. And and so like, I, I think, so, so to, to be clear, like mostly over the, the period of the mini mutiny, I was working on geolocation and, and verification and looking at sources that I trusted rather than trying to keep up with the discourse that was going on amongst Elon Musk and co. But from what I understand, it was pretty bad that there was a a bunch of people who had absolutely no idea what they were talking about being boosted to the top of people's feeds in the discussion about what was happening in Russia. So yeah, like I, I think the the general picture is that the quality control on information on Twitter is is really going downhill pretty fast. There is another part of that which is not necessarily related to Musk's ownership of Twitter, but is part of the broader dynamics of Twitter during these kind of breaking news events. You do tend to find, particularly around 
Russia, Ukraine stuff. There are there are a lot of people who, in in moments of calm reflection, will talk about how it's very important to not amplify unverified information or to not just pull every single video you can find off Telegram and tweet it out to all of your followers. And often that, well, not often, sometimes that goes completely by the wayside when something like this happens. And you do have a lot of people who 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 are very high profile, have a lot of followers who will just comb through whatever random telegram channel they can find and just spray all of the videos that they can that they can find across Twitter without doing any kind of verification or source checking and they'll just they'll just say unverified and then they'll spray it out there and it'll kind of seep through Twitter as, as, as a fact. So for, for example, what we were talking about a moment ago in terms of the, the idea that Putin fled Moscow on a plane to St. Petersburg, that is like, a, like an example of like a half fact that was spread around by a bunch of high profile accounts and like translated into a bunch of people who now think that it's a confirmed fact. So yeah, there's, there's I, I guess, kind of those, those two sides of it. The dynamics of Twitter during breaking news events and then also the ways in which Elon Musk has made it significantly worse. Elise, have you noticed anything in terms of the use of Russian bot networks on Twitter during the course of the conflict? Unequivocally, yes. There's been a huge particular, actually, and this comes back to the point of Musk's takeover. Since Musk has taken over, there has been a huge increase in the number of extremely suspicious accounts sharing like pro-Russian information, misinformation, disinformation, propaganda. There are some really significant networks of, of that activity going on. The, the kind of networks that, that were active on Twitter, like pre, pre-2016, before Twitter started to take misinformation and disinformation, and particularly state-linked networks, seriously, they are all back now and they are completely unbothered by content moderation. So yes, they are extremely active. You're listening to Yana Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au, 3CR Digital. On your DAB radio, we are currently talking to Elise Thomas about Russia and soon Drag Queen Story Hours. But just a reminder, it is Radiothon Month here on 3CR, so if you would like to donate, you can head to givenow.com.au slash CR slash Yana Passaran or just 3cr.org.au slash donate and make a donation to the station and keep the lights on. All right, back to Elise. Now, Elise, uh, we originally intended to talk to you today about something completely different, which was that the Institute for Strategic Dialogue has recently released their report, A Year of Hate, Understanding Threats and Harassment Targeting Drag Shows and the LGBTQ Plus Community. So I thought we could ask you a few questions about that, as we intended to. I guess just to begin with, why did ISD see this as an issue that required closer looking into? Well, it's actually not as completely unrelated as you might think. So we, so at ISD, just to give people some background, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue is a non-profit based in London. We work across all around the world, but particularly the US, the EU, the UK, um, me down here in Australia. And, and so because we have a lot of people in a lot of different parts of the world looking at different kinds of disinformation and extremism, it gives us a really useful kind of bird's eye view at, of what's happening globally. And one of the things that all of us, every every single analyst at ISD has noticed is the uptick in anti-LGBTQ plus hate. It is coming from everywhere, every angle from all of these actors at the same time. There is clearly, and this, this is clearly connected, like there is a, all of these actors are promoting this, including like it's a very, very big part. This like amplification of transphobia, homophobia is a very, very big part of Russia's propaganda around the war in Ukraine. I don't think the the emphasis that Russia puts on, on anti-LGBTQ plus propaganda has been 
picked up very well by the Western media. I don't, I, it, it tends to not make it into Western media reports, but it is a huge, huge part of their propaganda push in the war in Ukraine. Uh, so, it, so it is a little bit more connected than you might think. But also, obviously, it's coming from other countries in Europe. So, for example, Viktor Orban in Hungary is a huge proponent of this. Poland, obviously, massive, massive problem there. The far right in France, the far right in Italy, the far right in Germany. Obviously, the UK has a particular fixation on transphobia. Like I'm sure I don't have to tell any of your listeners what's going on in the far right in, in the far right and just the Republican right in the US. So it's it's coming from many many different places at once. It's a huge issue, and we at ISD are, are really really concerned about it. And I feel that there is really not enough work being done on this specific kind of hate and its connections to violent extremism. And so for this particular report. We, my colleagues and I wanted to look at this phenomenon of targeting of all ages drag events by like multiple different actors across, across different jurisdictions. And, and so that was the, the impetus behind doing this report. When you're looking at this worldwide attack on these events, is there a, a coordinated effort or are we just seeing it? To what extent is this opposition to drag queen story hours being coordinated or is it just in the sense that tactics and narratives are being shared more broadly? So I, I would say it's quite similar. And in fact, it, in some cases, it's exactly the same people. It's exactly the same networks that were involved in spreading anti-COVID, anti-vaccine conspiracy theories during the pandemic. So it's that same kind of transnational movement with kind of local manifestations, if that makes sense. And and so like like it's a lot of the, the these groups sharing a lot of the same content. They're copying a lot of the same narratives from context to context to context with like slight local variations. So it's not it's not that they are that there's like one central group coordinating all of these things, but you do see echoes and mirrors of, of each group as they watch what each other are doing online. They they watch each other's live streams, they retweet each other's memes, they listen to each other's podcasts. So there there are connections there, but I wouldn't call it a coordinated effort. At least there's a coalition built around these issues. Do you think that this also represents a potential political consolidation for the far right? Yeah, I do. Like, I, I think there are real concerns around, particularly this anti-LGBTQ plus mobilisation, because it unites people. Not it, it connects actors who are sort of on the very, very extreme fringe far right, the overt neo-Nazis, the people who are right, right on the edge. With, for example, in the US, like fairly mainstream Republicans. Like, this is a, a fairly mainstream Republican position in some parts of the US. And so, yeah, like, I, I think there was a real concern around kind of the coalition that they can build. And you're also seeing it, like, it's not, and it's not all on the, the right-wing end of the spectrum as well. Like you are seeing TERFs, for example, the trans-exclusionary radical feminists and people who traditionally you would certainly consider as being part of the left are also a part of this coalition. So, yeah, I, I do think there are some, some significant concerns around political mobilisation as well as violent mobilisation. So in a report, to back up for a minute, we looked at four different countries. We looked at the US, we looked at the UK, we looked at France, and we looked at Australia. And the the movements, the, the mobilisation in those countries are actually remarkably similar, but the contexts are very different. And that means that the threats are very different. So in the US, one of the, the most significant threats is actually legislation. It's legislators who are moving to 
ban drag performances or to in some other way crack down on drag performers using legislation. Obviously, in Australia, it's a very different context. There's, as far as I'm aware, no concern that, that any politician or legislator is going to move legislatively against drag performers. So the threat is much more around kind of extremist mobilisation to violence, but also the the impact on the LGBTQ plus community and, and also the self-censorship of councils and other venues who might be thinking about putting on, for example, a drag queen story hour at a library and might be scared out of doing it by that backlash. So yeah, the, the movements are very similar, but the, threat, the, the threats are quite different because the contexts are different. I guess also locally speaking, in terms of the importance of paying attention to local context in Victoria, the question of the right and transgender issues has proven to be politically contentious. How do you think the right as a whole has responded to this issue? I think so far, actually, for Australia, signs are pretty promising. Like if if even the Vic Liberals were not willing to stand behind more redeeming, like that's a really positive sign for us, I think, for for us as people who support the right of, of drag performers to do performances. So, yeah, in some ways I think that's actually a positive. And I actually... There was there was a really funny comment on the the Telegram channel of one of the neo Nazis involved in the the National Socialist Network who was present at the Posey Parker rally and did do the Heil Hitler salute on the Parliament steps. There was a, a really funny comment on this guy's Telegram channel where he was saying that a lot of people are, are saying to him, "Oh, I don't support trans people, but I don't want to be outspoken about it because like only the Nazis the Nazis are anti trans," which I thought was kind of a just a funny example of kind of the the effect that actually having these like very extreme actors, these overt neo-Nazis, these like well-known conspiracy theorists associate themselves with the anti-trans cause, in a way it actually turns off the mainstream population. It actually puts them off getting involved. So I, I think that the more, I, I think in Australia that, that anti-trans component is much more marginal than it is in the US or even in the UK. So like, I think, I think, Relatively speaking, I'm optimistic for us. <laughs> Lise, could you speak to some of the narratives that ISD identified as being common across different jurisdictions in relation to these events? So the, the core of all of these narratives is the idea of protecting children. So it's the, the implication that drag performances are inherently sexual and that by bringing, bringing children to performances by drag artists, you're exposing them to, to a sexual performance that will potentially open, open, put them at risk from quote unquote groomers being groomed by pedophiles and or potentially being converted into being LGBTQ+. One of the things to note is that there's a really consistent conflation in these narratives between drag performers and trans people. Obviously, these are two separate groups of people, although there are some individuals who belong to both. But in these narratives, they really conflate, conflate those two, which is, which is important to note because it, because that conflation means that a, a threat to drag performers is in this context is also a threat to trans people and vice versa. And that's, that's something to be aware of when we're thinking about like, what are the, the threats in terms of escalation to some form of extremist or even terrorist violence? Other narratives that we saw were framing drag as misogyny. That's kind of an interesting one, which is present mostly in the UK. So it's the idea that having a, a quote unquote man, like depending on, 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 
it, depending on the performer, but having having someone dress up as a woman is inherently misogynistic if that person is not a cisgender woman. It's one of the narratives that we've seen. Other parts of it are the idea that it's, like, it's a waste of public resources is one that comes up quite often. Like you'll have people will post this very extreme comment and be like, I don't want my tax dollars to go towards paedophile groomers or whatever. The idea that LGBTQ plus identities are an ideology. So you hear that quite a lot. There's a trans ideology or the LGBTQ plus ideology, the alphabet mafia, these are terms that they use a lot. One of the particularly kind of interesting and I think concerning aspects that we've seen around the world, but like I I notice it quite a lot coming up here in Australia is the use of religious language and particularly the conflation or the, the, the implication that drag performers are in some way satanic either metaphorically or in some case it appears people mean this literally that they literally think that they are demonic they are demons they are here to to have have a demonic influence upon the children and and that i think is quite concerning in the context of the growing religiosity that we are seeing in parts of the the remnants of the covid conspiracy movement in australia you look back for example at the weambilla shootings that we had in december I think it was December last year, which was the, I believe, declared as the first, Australia's first example of Christian fundamentalist motivated terrorism. And that was, and if you look at, look at the, the writings of the William Biller shooters, you can see this real clear mix of extreme Christian fundamentalism and conspiracy theories. And I, I, and that obviously they're an incredibly extreme example, but that increasing religiosity that we're seeing in parts of the COVID conspiracy movements are bleeding over or transferred over into this anti-trans and anti-drag mobilization as well. Obviously that has ties back to QAnon. It's not, it's not, it's not QAnon itself, but it's certainly like there are, there are shades of QAnon in there. And obviously that ties back also to the kind of the broader question of the, the, the earlier example of the satanic panic and before that Jewish blood libel. So all of these things are kind of mixed in together in this very messy way. But this, the, the core is always this idea of a satanic evil threat to children. You may not have seen this comment yet, Elise. Uh, what with the, the weekend's events, there was a drag queen story hour in Wollongong over the weekend, and I noticed a, a comment from someone who infiltrated this satanic event was that, oh, they must be onto us because there was nothing sexual about the performance at all. It was just somebody reading <laughs> an ordinary storybook to children. Oh, love it. Yeah, yeah. I just love the reasoning. It's like, oh, I went and saw nothing. Nothing was wrong, so it must be a conspiracy. Yeah. Meanwhile, outside there were these neo-Nazis with a cult black sun hoodies on, yeah. some of whom I don't think would be getting working with children checks. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> and it's like just this strange uh, contrast. Yeah, so, so I like I did see a little bit of of some of the like the Twitter coverage and stuff of of that event, and I will say one of the things that has been extremely cheering, actually, in a, in a weird way, about doing this research is that particularly particularly in Australia, but also in other places around the world, at almost every event where there's been a protest, the protesters have been vastly outnumbered by counter protesters, vastly outnumbered. You'll get a handful of a handful of protesters and 200, 300 counter-protesters there to support the event. Um, and that is actually like a really, like, like a, just a lovely heartwarming thing to see. Elise, despite this, Australia's witnessed the cancellation of numerous drag queen events. How do you explain this apparent discrepancy between what seems to be evidence of popular support for these events and the inability of authorities to be able to ensure that they're safely conducted? So I, I think it's easy to be quite critical of councils for cancelling events 
from from the outside and without seeing it from their perspective. I I think like honestly, so I think I think councils need support. They need support. They need training. They need funding to deal with this. I think one of the things that is like perhaps people don't understand watching from the outside is that actually running a response to the kind of targeted harassment and mobilization that we're seeing against these events is quite expensive. It's because you've got to pay for extra support staff on the phones. You've got to pay for extra support staff on the emails. You've got to pay for security. You've got to, and obviously as the council also, you're going to have to spend a lot of your time dealing with these issues. I'm not saying that any of these are a reason why you wouldn't run it, but I think councils need more support and they need more training. I've spoken to like a number of councillors who have either been in, uh, councillors from councils who have either successfully run these events or who have chosen to cancel them. And they all say pretty much the same thing, which is that they didn't know how to handle this because it's not something that's happened to them before. Councils are often quite small organisations. They don't have a heap of money. They don't have a heap of experience in dealing with the kind of targeted potentially violent harassment that they're receiving so like uh, yeah my 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 honest take on it is that they need they need help they need support they need training they need funding we've recently had elon musk release his twitter files which revealed twitter's extreme left-wing bias when it came to people like chaya raichik libs of tiktok I was wondering what your observation of how Twitter and other social media companies had actually handled people like Chaya Rajik was and the influence that people like this have on events like these. Yeah, enormous, enormous. Like I, I, Chaya Rajik in in particular, but also like a number of other second and third tier influencers have played a huge role, I think, in promoting this anti-LGBTQ plus hate and these specific forms of mobilisation where they target these specific sorts of events, these specific like all ages drag events, has been enormous. Obviously, since Musk has taken over, Twitter has really stopped, really stopped enforcing on a bunch of its policies, which were previously tended to at least somewhat address like these, these, these issues of high profile influencers who are building their name, making their money off promoting hate. Since, since Musk has taken over, we have seen, I think, a significant expansion of the anti-transgender content, anti-transgender, anti-drag content niche on Twitter. Yeah, no, it's, it's been a huge problem, a huge problem, and I don't see it getting better anytime soon, unfortunately. Whether it's the gay agenda or the transgender agenda or satanic panic or something else, a lot of anxiety seems to be expressed about political degeneracy, the decadence of Western civilization, which, as I understand, forms the an important basis for a reactionary movement. What do you think is the broader significance of this anxiety being channeled towards children and drag queens? What do you think it says about our current moment? I mean, so I think the the targeting of drag performers, the targeting of LGBTQ plus communities is a Trojan horse for those bigger issues that you were mentioning, this reaction against the expansion of democratic values, the expansion of human rights to minority communities, marginalised communities, that kind of broader broader backlash that we're seeing from the, the Trumpist right in America from Viktor Orban's Hungary, from the Law and Justice Party in Poland, from Marine Le Pen, from the far right in Italy, all of that is wrapped up in a a push back against the expansion of human rights and democratic values. And I, I think one thing I think which is important to note about this this report is we didn't have any funding for it. We did this because we thought it was really, really important, but it has been difficult to find funding for the, the research that we want to do on anti, anti-LGBTQ plus work. I think because it gets 
pigeonholed a little bit as like a minority issue, as an issue that only affects a relatively small community. That's nonsense. Like this is fundamentally like A, the LGBTQ plus community is not small, but it's also a reflection of a a broader backlash against abortion rights, for example, against the the rights of people, the, the rights of people of colour to, to not be subjected to, to hate speech and discrimination. It's it's a much, much broader issue which is manifesting in, in this particular case in attacks on the, the rights of drag performers to dress as they want and read storybooks to children. Elise, do you think that the uh, the panic about trans community risk being displaced by debate over the voice as a rallying cry? Well, actually, it's interesting you should say that because I was looking just today, getting ready for this this conversation at the Instagram of a anti-drag influencer who I will not name, but she was posting extensively about the voice. And like there, like this is like a this the groups who are engaged in this kind of like anti drag mobilization are also you know as I said like a lot of this is kind of the the legacy of the COVID conspiracy groups and so a lot of them are also very active in anti vaccine anti vaccine spreading anti vaccine narratives and also yeah as you say mobilizing against the voice I reckon they can do both <laughs> I reckon they will do both but yeah that crossover is definitely definitely there well. On that cheery note, we will leave it there. If people want to find Elise, she is on Twitter at Elise Tomei five. So Thomas with a five on the end. Yeah. So the, like the a- only Elon Musk policy that I wanted to happen was that he would take the egg accounts, like take the 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 handles of egg accounts back because Elise Thomas has been taken by an egg account. Yes, that was the only one that I wanted, and he hasn't done it. Ah, oh, no. Well, that's where you can find Elise. And just a reminder, it is still Radiothon Month here at Three CR. Head over to givenow.com.au slash CR slash Pasaran if you would like to donate to the Yeah Pasaran fundraiser. We would really, really, really appreciate it. We would. There's just a few days left. So if you have any spare change, 3CR could use it. So please donate if you can. Thank you. And remember, if you get it in before the end of June, you can claim it on your tax, any donation over $2. So we will catch you next week. See you later. Bye-bye. Hear it in the way that I rhyme. Yeah.
lights I will put you in a state of mind That I'm trying to go at yours and make you mine I'm trying No life don't care Just more hustle than I'm trying to make some dope right here Life ain't fair Cut the short end of the stick And I'm destined to keep the rich bastards nightmare Press to kill in your fancy cars Don't know nothing but life or the way things are Cause things is gonna change Yeah, the day's coming Put it on the rich now, man I'm taking from them Rob the rich and get back to the poor Or some Robin Hood shit and I'm ready for more If you both put your hands up Matter of fact, it's rich to throw them up Cause it's a stick up for what? Run that shit, motherfucker! We're still black a million dollar trooper Shouting hard to look like Gary Cooper If you're blue and you don't know where to go to Why don't you go with fashion sense? Have you experienced or seen racism against black followers? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. This year's Eco-Socialism Conference, A World Beyond Capitalism, is on the first weekend of July. Activists from around the world will gather at Victorian Trades Hall to discuss the intersection between the ecological, economic and political crises of our time. The event is open to everyone, so come along and be part of the struggle for a better world. Find out more information on panels and speakers and get your tickets today at ecosocialism.org.au. A 3CR supporter. 